Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15. Now this evening we're looking at verses 14 through uh, 16. But before we look at these verses, I want to uh, remind us of how oftentimes it is good to communicate to someone the reason why you have told them what you have told them. For example, I have expressed these concerns about your conduct because I know that you love the Lord and want to please Him. Or, I have shared this struggle of mine with you so that you can be praying for me. Or, I am reminding you of these instructions because they are so important. It is oftentimes good to communicate to someone the reasons why you have told them what you have told them. In our text, the Apostle Paul communicates to the church in Rome the reason why he wrote what he did to them. And what he says here will help us who have studied the book of Romans to properly receive and apply all that we have studied in this great epistle. Uh, I'm going to read to us Romans 15, verses 14 through 16. If you're able, please stand in honor of the word of God. Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Romans is a doctrinal treatise wrapped in a personal letter. The majority of it is a doctrinal treatise. It it, it reads more like, um, like a systematic theology book than a personal letter. Uh, Paul gives us great doctrine, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, going through chapter 15, verse 13. It is a doctrinal treatise wrapped up in a personal letter. You see that personal letter at the beginning, and then you see it also at the end, which we are starting tonight. The doctrinal treatise is, as I said, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 15, verse 13. That that great majority of the epistle is about the gospel of God and how the person who believes the gospel is now to live. Now, we have spent a whole lot of time studying that doctrine, and so it's been a while since we read the opening verses. So I want us to go back to chapter 1, I'm going to read to us verses 1 through 17 to remind you how Paul started this before he went into the doctrine. And then what we'll see tonight is actually very closely related to these first 17 verses. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may mutually I'm sorry, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then Paul launches into the doctrine, starting with our need for the gospel, with our condition under sin, under God's righteous condemnation, then going into what Jesus Christ has done, uh, to save sinners, and then justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and then sanctification, and then glorification, and God's great plan of redemption with Jews and Gentiles throughout history, and then how we are to live as believers in Christ. That brings us all the way to our text in chapter 15, verse 14 where having given the doctrine, Paul resumes to speak in a very personal manner uh, to the Roman uh, Christians. The remainder of the epistle will communicate Paul's reason for writing this epistle, his ministry ambitions, personal greetings, and then a closing doxology. Uh, Let's see uh, tonight how Paul begins to conclude this great epistle. Uh, we see, first of all, in verse 14, that Romans was written to a mature church. It was written to a mature church. But Paul had not visited the church in Rome. As we saw in those opening verses, he had heard reports about the church, as is evidenced by what he's about to say here in verse 14. Some of the reports may have come from Priscilla and Aquila. He mentions them in chapter 16, verse 3. He sends greetings to them. They are currently in Rome, ministering there in the church. Now, they, Paul refers to them as his fellow workers. He had labored side by side with them um, in the gospel uh, back in, what was it, Corinth? Um, and then after that time, they went to Rome. You would expect that they would have reported back to Paul on how the church was doing in Rome. Maybe others gave him reports as well, but he does have a good sense of how the church is doing, that they have been maturing in Christ. Look at verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, he doesn't address all the churches like that. 
But think of how he addresses Galatians. You know, I'm concerned that I've labored over you in vain. You're embracing a false gospel. Um, think, think of what he says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. He brings up a lot of problems in the church. Immaturity, sin, and so forth. But here, Paul says to the church in Rome, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. The New American Standard uh, uses the word convinced. I am convinced about you of these things. ESV, I am satisfied about you. Uh, First of all, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Meaning full of uprightness in conduct. God, Jesus said that only God is good. Speaking of God's uh, uprightness, His righteousness. I am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. A goodness that reflects God's goodness. Uprightness in conduct, which would include doing good to others. Now, when Paul taught back in chapter 3 on our fallen condition, our condition before we were saved, he said just the opposite. Uh, He quoted the Old Testament in Romans 3.12, All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That was when we were in our fallen, rebellious, unsaved condition. Uh, But God has saved us. And when he saved us, he gave us a new heart, we could say a new nature, and he put his spirit within us, and he began a work of sanctifying us. As a result of the, the, the impartation of a new nature and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these Christians, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, that you yourselves are full of goodness. That's God's work in them. And along with being full of goodness, that you are filled with all knowledge. Speaking about a comprehensive understanding of the gospel of Christ and the Christian faith. Including the sorts of things that Paul has written in this letter. I am confident or satisfied or convinced that you yourselves are filled with all knowledge. Now, these two characteristics, one, being full of goodness, two, being filled with all knowledge, um, are uh, two characteristics of Christian maturity that go hand in hand. Think about chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Or actually, we can look back at chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Thinking about the connection between knowledge of the truth and goodness. Christian character. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He's appealing to what God, the truths of what God has done for us in Christ, the truths of the gospel that he has been teaching. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So the truth that has been taught to the believer is motivation 
for living now a new life unto the Lord that is holy and pleasing to him. And we are transformed in this way by the renewal of our mind. The renewal of our mind with the truth of God. So there's a connection between truth and then the way that we are to live. And coming back to Romans 15, verse 14, we have both of these side by side. I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. Knowledge of the Christian faith. Knowledge of the truth that God has revealed through in, in the Scriptures and through the Apostles, which now is in our New Testament. And the result of understanding and knowing the truth is a transformed life. The truth produces goodness in our life, moral uprightness, the things that are pleasing to God. So these are two characteristics of Christian maturity, and they go hand in hand. We learn the truth in order that our life would be changed. And the only way that our life can be changed is by the truth, as our mind is renewed with that truth. Now Paul goes on and says, uh, not only is he satisfied that they are full of goodness and that they are filled with all knowledge, but also, he says, and able to instruct one another. The New American Standard, able to admonish one another. What does this word in the original language mean that's been translated instruct or admonished? Well, if one of the ways you can see what a ver- word means is by by learning what are some other ways that it's translated in your translation. And the ESV also translates this word with the word admonish and also with the word warn. So th- th- there's no single English word that, that consistently will give the full idea of the word. But when you bring these different uh, glosses together, instruct, admonish, warn, uh, you have a good idea of the meaning of the word. A highly respected Greek lexicon defines this Greek word that's been translated by the ESV as instruct. The lexicon defines it, quote, to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. To counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. When Paul talks about how the the, the church is able to instruct one another, He is speaking of an important ministry between church members. We all need our brothers and sisters in Christ to instruct us, to admonish us. When I look back over my Christian life, there are three times that I very vividly remember being greatly helped by this ministry of instructing or admonishing one another. The first time that was very vivid in my mind was after Esther and I had only been married a few years. And I sought counsel from my pastor for my anger at my wife. There would be times not because of wrongdoing on my wife's part, but because of my own heart issues. There would be times I'd become very angry. And I became concerned about it, and I I, I knew that I needed help from a brother. 
And so I went to my, my pastor and, and asked him for counsel. And he, he was very firm with me, which is exactly what my soul needed at that moment. I needed a brother to be firm with me about this. He admonished me. He instructed me based on the scriptures. And the Lord used that to greatly help me. Uh, the second time that's very vivid in my mind was a time that I, in which I was not seeking counsel. The first example I gave you, I was seeking counsel. The second one, I was not seeking counsel. Remember, I went to Dr. Buznitz um, at the seminary that um, I attended uh, for a different issue. And in that conversation with Dr. Buznitz, as he was asking about my life situation, he learned from me that there were times when the only people in our home were, at that time, Esther and I were renting a room in our condominium uh, to a couple who was good friends of Esther and, and myself. And they had a baby, uh, Aaron and Alicia, and th- their son. And as I talked with Dr. Buznitz, uh, he learned from me that there were times when the only people in our home were Alicia, her baby, and myself. And he warned me sternly about the foolishness of being in that situation where it would be me, the wife, and her, her baby. And I am so thankful that Dr. Buznitz admonished me, that he instructed me, that he warned me, and uh, he, he, he alarmed me, he warned me of the great danger. And seeing the great danger, um, I did not put myself in that position again. But I would go, when Esther would be at work, um, and I would not be at seminary in, in, in the daytime, I would go to our church building. <laughs> and I would study there. Rather than being in this position, that was a very foolish position to be in. Dr. Boothians did what this passage talks about. Paul says, I am confident that you are able to instruct one another, to admonish one another. And the third time that's very vivid in my mind was when we had been here at CFC for several years. And I sought counsel from a biblical counselor for anxiety, anger, and depression. I, I knew this was sin. And I was trying to overcome it, uh, but I was not finding victory. I was not finding success in overcoming these habits in my life. And uh, as I, I went to this brother in the Lord, he ended up going into more areas of my life than I anticipated. Um, because all the areas in our life are connected. And the Lord really used his biblical counsel um, in a great way in my, my life. And the Lord worked through that to, to, to free me uh, from some of that, um, to grow me, to mature me. Um, you know, th- there, there are times where though we have a new heart and, and, and though we want to please the Lord, we want to grow in Christ, we need instruction from brothers and sisters. That's the way God has composed the body of Christ. That we would need one another. None of us are lone rangers in the Christian life. He's given brothers and sisters different gifts in the body. 
And we need one another in, in multiple ways. And one thing that we need from brothers and sisters is instruction, admonishment, warning. This is God's design. And Paul says of this church in Rome, I am persuaded that you are able to do this. You're able to instruct one another. All of us should turn to brothers and sisters for instruction. None of us should be shy to do so. And all of us should seek to mature in Christ and to be able to minister to others in this way. Paul recognized that the congregation as a whole was able to instruct one another. Now, this does not require formal education. The members of the church in Rome hadn't gone to seminary. It doesn't require formal instruction outside of the ministry of the church. But the ministry of the church is designed by Christ to equip us to do this very thing. What what this instruction, what this admonishment requires are the two characteristics of Christian maturity that Paul has already mentioned. That he knows are present in the church in Rome. Filled with all knowledge. Knowledgeable in the scriptures. And filled with goodness. Living out the scriptures. Applying the scriptures. Being transformed by the scriptures to increasingly become like Jesus. These are the two things that are needed in order to be able to instruct brothers and sisters. You need to know the gospel. You need to know, have an understanding of the Christian faith as a whole. And you need to be someone who is walking in obedience to the scriptures. You can't instruct someone in something that you're not doing. And so this is what is needed. And Paul says of the church, I'm confident that you have all of this. That you are filled with goodness, filled with um, all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now certainly some Christians will be specially gifted in this ministry. Because back in chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, uh, Paul spoke of how we've been given different spiritual gifts. One of those gifts was teaching. Another gift was exhortation. And there were other sorts of gifts as well. Some people will be more gifted in instructing one another, admonishing one another than others. But while that is the case, at the same, at the same time, every believer ought to be seeking to grow, to grow in their ability to admonish and instruct brothers and sisters because this is God's design for the whole church, for all the members. All of us are to be involved in this. Now, there's a term, neuthetic counseling, that comes from this verse. Uh, the Greek word for instruct or admonish is neutheteo. And Looking here at this verse, at what Paul says that believers should be competent 
to instruct, competent to counsel. There, there, there is a, a form of counseling that is called nuthetic counseling, more commonly called biblical counseling. Counseling that is based on the scriptures, that understands the scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness. And, and so we can use the scriptures. And if, if, if we are knowledgeable in the scriptures and we're living out the scriptures, then we are competent with the Spirit of God to be able to instruct, admonish, counsel brothers and sisters. Now the question in the bulletin that asks, verse 14 speaks about instructing one another. How can such instruction come about? How can we initiate it? Lillian? Um, by pointing out their sin. Uh, pointing out someone's sin. Okay. Other thought. Yes. This. The first step is fellowship. Because if you don't know what's yes. going on, how, how can you know a brother or sister? Right. Fellowship is very, very important. In fellowship, we get to know one another. Because in fellowship, the issues come up. What else can we add to that? How can we initiate this? Um, how can such instruction come about? Caleb? We can start with asking what they've been reading recently in the Bible. Alright, so out of care for our brothers and sisters, asking questions. A good question, what have you been reading in the Bible? Right, that begins to bring up the issues of, of, of life. That begins to bring up the truth and how we are to live out the truth. Alex. Discipleship. Discipleship. And can you elaborate on that? I mean, you know, meeting with either a godly man or a godly woman that's much older than you are, okay. you know, meeting with them once a week or once every two weeks or what have you, going with them about how you're doing in your walk with Christ. Okay, so intentional discipleship where someone who's younger in the faith is spending time with someone who's older in the faith. Uh, that the one who's older in the faith might help them to to grow in their walk with Christ. In that context, um, there can be instructing one another. Yes. Others. How do we initiate this? How can such instruction come about? Uh, Debbie? I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but maybe you could offer to read the Bible with them. Yes. That the wonderful thing that we can be doing together is to be asking someone else, a brother or sister, you know, can we read the Bible together? Can we meet weekly or every other week to read through the Bible together? The Bible brings up the issues of, of life as you're discussing the Word of God together. That provides a wonderful context for instructing one another. Esther. Yes. Be feeding yourself with the Word of God so that you are able to minister His Word to others. Anyone else? Just elaborating on what we said about fellowship, build, building relationships with others in the church. Um, asking and sharing about the issues of life 
you know, in our conversations with one another, let us not just be talking about you know, the, the, the things that anyone would, would talk about together, but may we be um, asking about the, the issues of life. How is your walk with the Lord going? How are you and Jesus doing? Um, we are to be sharing with others about the issues of life. It's, it's a sharing in following Christ together. L- loving others enough to instruct them. Love moves you to instruct. So love enough to do so. Yeah, Francis. And not telling everybody the person's issues, like going yeah. around talking about it, but like keeping it to yourself. Yeah. Showing that you're trustworthy by not taking what's personal information that someone shares with you and sharing it with others without their permission. If someone's going to open up to you, they have to trust you. If someone is going to share with you about the issues of life, they have to trust you. It's where to build trust in this way. Excellent. Anything else? Kevin? Um, being vulnerable uh, to that other person. I want to uh, asking the questions, but also sharing in your own life, so that there's a, a openness. Yes, this is something that is to be mutual. So not not just talking to someone about you know their 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 walk with the Lord, but being vulnerable and opening up about our own life and walk with Jesus. It's all very good. That leads into the second question: How can we grow? In instructing one another. How can we Titus? Reading God's word. Reading God's word. Yes. What else? Debbie. Attending services and Bible studies. Yes. Uh, attending Bible studies, worship services. The the, the, the the ministry of the word is meant to equip us for this very thing. And bring, yeah. And it brings us together. What else? How can we grow in instructing one? Alex? Admiring how a pastor or an elder leads a church or leads a group or just ministers to one person or a group of people. So observing how others minister the word that we might learn from that example. You know. Not just reading the Bible, but studying the Bible. Not just reading the Bible, but studying it. Yeah, to, to really know it, we got to study it. Dan? Uh, doing it more often. Yep. And the more often we do it, we learn from mistakes. We learn from, oh, this could have been better. Yes. By doing this, by instructing one another, by admonishing one another, we, we learn, we grow in it. I also have by doing this together with someone who is more experienced. Um, we, Jesus' disciples learned by watching his example. He trained his disciples by doing ministry with them around him. So you can learn how to instruct, how to admonish by 
joining a brother or sister uh, who is more experienced in, in doing this. Um, joining them as, as they do this. Um, memorizing key verses. Alright? The more scripture you have memorized, the more scripture you have available in your mind to be able to, in the moment, use in instructing, admonishing, helping a brother or sister. And what passages do you go to? Well, if you've memorized key passages, they'll be right there. And they, they, they will come to mind as the Spirit so works in your heart and mind. So memorizing key verses uh, will help you to grow in this. And they also put on here reading some good resources on biblical counseling and on specific issues that we as Christians face. Um, we have a good number of resources available for free in the foyer that can be a help to you. Um, as far as like a book on biblical counseling, um, the, the book that comes to my mind, not because I've read, I've read it, but I have skimmed through it, and comparing it to other books I have read, it seems to me that this would be a really good resource compared to what I, whatever else I've seen, would be a book by Pastor Deepak Reju at Capitol Hill Baptist Church with Nine Marks, co-authored by Jeremy Pierre, called The Pastor and Counseling the Basics of Shepherding Members in Need. Um, I put it there in your, your notes. Even though it's written for pastors, still, if you want to really grow um, in your ability to uh, counsel brothers and sisters from the scriptures, I think you would find this book helpful. Now, why does Paul say what he does in verse 14? We've spent a lot of time on this verse. It's a rich verse. But why does Paul say what he does here? I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Well, considering the next verse, it appears that Paul did not want the believers in Rome thinking that he wrote this epistle out of a sense that they were lacking spiritually. He wrote what he did to them because he understood them to be mature. And the book of Romans, we find, is, is really one of the richest books in all of the Bible. And one of the reasons was Paul, when he wrote it, he knew he was writing to a mature church. Now Paul goes on in verse 15 and in, in 16 and indicates that Romans was written because Paul was called to be a minister to the Gentiles. Look at verse 15. He says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so the offering of the Gentiles excuse me, may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 15, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Now he does not mean that the Roman believers knew everything that Paul taught in this epistle, but it means they already understood Paul's main points. Paul says he has written to them because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He's referring here to his apostleship. 
He was appointed an apostle by the grace of God. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said, Through Jesus Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. In chapter 11, verse 13, he said, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, Paul writes, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Speaking about how Christ called him as an apostle. In Galatians 2, 9, it says, When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, that was the grace of apostleship, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul understood, the other apostles understood, that when Christ appointed Paul as an apostle, that it was specifically to a ministry that mostly would focus on the Gentiles. While Cephas and, and John and some of the other apostles, they were focused at this time on the Jews. Paul saw himself, he understood himself rightly, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now the Roman church, to which Paul writes, was located in the capital of the Roman Empire. And the church was mainly Gentile. As we saw indicated in the opening verses of this epistle. And Paul understood that they were in the sphere of his apostolic responsibility as an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul wrote to them not to express his own beliefs and wisdom, nor to fulfill a personal desire or plan. Rather, he is indicating that he wrote this letter under divine orders to teach divine truths to the Gentiles. That is why he has written as he has written. Paul goes on. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We see here that Paul views his ministry as worship, as worship. He likens the ministry of the gospel to the ministry of a priest who offers acceptable offerings to God as worship. He likens converted Gentiles to offerings given to God in worship. Now notice the words may may be acceptable. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. The Old Testament distinguished between acceptable offerings and unacceptable offerings. I want us to turn over to Isaiah chapter 1 to see how the Lord spoke of some offerings being unacceptable. Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 10. Isaiah 1, 10. Now here Isaiah is speaking to the Israelites in the southern kingdom. The southern part of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Israel was not living like Israel ought to live as the covenant people of God, as the redeemed people of God. 
They were living like pagans. They were living in wickedness. Verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, the Lord had given instructions in His law through Moses for, to the Israelites for offering these things. Now, why does God say, I've had enough. I do not delight in these things. Go down to verse 15. Verse 15, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Their offerings, even if the offerings were what the Lord had prescribed in the law of Moses, were not acceptable to God because those offering the, uh, the, the offerings were living in unrepentant sin. Their wickedness made their offerings unacceptable. The lack of repentance made their offerings unacceptable. Now, contrast that with our text. Romans 15, verse 16, where Paul says that God's grace has been given to him to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. What makes the Gentile converts an acceptable offering to God? Look at the next words. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The saving work of God makes the Gentile converts acceptable to God. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Though the Gentiles were seen by unbelieving Jews as unclean, and though they were defiled by their sin, as Paul stated so clearly in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, the reference is wrong here, through chapter 3, verse 20, they were made holy by the Holy Spirit when they were justified by faith. Brothers and sisters, when you first believed in Christ, you not only were justified, but you also were sanctified. Meaning the Holy Spirit set you apart from sin unto the Lord for His service. That is your new position in Christ by the grace of God. You are a saint. You are a holy one. Someone whom God has set apart unto Himself for His service. And this new position becomes increasingly evidenced as the Holy Spirit progressively sanctifies the believer. As He makes us, in a growing way, holy in our conduct. To be sanctified is to be made holy. And positionally, the believer is holy, set apart unto the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit begins this work of progressive sanctification where He transforms the way that we live that we would increasingly be holy as God is holy. And so, Paul says that the, the Gentiles, who are the fruit of, of his apostolic ministry, or the fruit of his gospel ministry, who have been, been saved 
as a result of his proclamation of the gospel, these Gentiles are an offering to God, acceptable to him, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to observe in verse 15b through 16 how God's work through the Apostle Paul was a Trinitarian work. The end of verse 15, because of the grace given me by God, that would be God the Father, as usually in the New Testament, when we have the word God, it's referring to the, fa- the Father. Because of the grace given me by God the Father, to be a minister of Christ Jesus, there's the Son, to the Gentiles, the last part, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all involved in this work, through the Apostles' proclamation, saving Gentiles. Saving Jews as well, but the focus of his ministry was upon the Gentiles. Notice here that for the Apostle, converts were not his trophies, but they were offerings to God that brought glory to God. Paul's goal in writing this epistle, is that the saints in Rome would be further sanctified by the Holy Spirit as an offering to God. Which reminds us of what Paul said back in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Each of us, as believer, has this, uh, this responsibility of presenting our body to God as a living sacrifice that is being made increasingly holy. This is our spiritual worship. It's not all that unrelated when Paul speaks of the offering of the Gentiles, acceptable to God, sanctified by the Spirit. It's all about worship to God. So we are to ask ourselves some questions. First of all, is Romans having a sanctifying effect upon our life? We spent a lot of time studying the book of Romans. Have we just been learning doctrine? Or has has it gone beyond that to the doctrine sanctifying us? That ought to be the way it is. Paul has given the teaching he's given that the believers in Rome would be further sanctified by the Holy Spirit unto the glory of God. Another question we should ask ourselves is, do we receive instruction from brothers and sisters? Being that when Paul speaks of this being a mature church, he speaks about them being able to do this. This is important in the church. So, do we receive instruction from brothers and sisters? And secondly, do we instruct brothers and sisters? Or, are we, or at least are we seeking to grow so that we could instruct brothers and sisters? Well, any questions or comments on anything that we have seen uh, tonight to edify us? Yes, Francis. Could a Christian be prevented from something like that? In, in, in general, no. I, every Christian should grow, and be able to do this. So they should be able to instruct others 
Yes. Yes. So you shouldn't be prevented from doing that. No. So your second question is an important one because just as we should seek to instruct, we should always be instructable. We should be able to receive um, instruction from others and, and not think that, that we're above it or, or that it's something that uh, we can't receive even from someone we might consider as a less mature Christian. Yes. Yes, yes. So, this needs to be combined with other passages in Scripture that teach of how we are to relate to one another. So, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, said, take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, he's saying, you know, before you go to, you know, bring to a brother's attention their sin that they need to uh, repent of. First examine your heart and life to see if there's anything that you need to repent of. Um, if, if, if there is, deal with that first before you go and deal with someone else's sin. You, you can't see clearly, he says, to deal with their sin if, you're, if you have this unrepentant sin in your life. Unrepentant sin clou- clouds your, your, your vision. You can't see clearly to do that. Others. Yes, Francis. When you when they were in Isaiah in Isaiah, you said they had unrepented sin. And then God said to seek justice and to plead the case for the fatherless and the widow. Is that the reason why they were in sin because they weren't doing those things? That that was that those were examples of what, what they were of their, their evil that they were not doing those things, yeah. Others. Alex. How would you counsel someone? Let's. I mean, they're not unwittingly, or, or, or let's say they're in. They, let's say they're not in unrepentant sin. But let's say, for example, they're lazy to repent, or they're not, or they're sluggish in the repentance of sin that they know they've committed. And they they know they have to repent of it, but they're just lazy and very slothful about it. How would you counsel someone if they were in that situation? Uh, so, you know. Bringing them face to face with the seriousness of their sin, but you know, with, when you, when you are instructing others, when you're admonishing others, it's very important to ask questions. Right. You need to first draw out the heart before we can address the heart. And the scriptures always go t- to the level of the heart, right. because everything that we say and do comes from the heart. So before you would even speak further into that person's life, you should ask questions. So in this instance, you know, you know I'm, I'm concerned about the way that you've been living. Um, are, you, are you concerned about it? It doesn't appear to me that you are concerned about it. What, what, what do you think about what you're doing here? You need to first find out, you know, is this something that they know this is a sin and they hate it and they're trying to overcome it, but 
from your perspective, it's looking like they're being lazy? Or is it something where they're not really convicted about it? And like, well, you know, it would be good not to do that, but they don't really see the sin. You know, how, how you respond to someone who they, they know this is sin and they hate it and they're trying to overcome it, it's going to be very different from how you talk to someone who really isn't convicted that this is sin against the Holy God. So you got to draw out the heart. you got to find out what's going on um, before you can speak into that. So in that first example you part out, you know, they hate sin, they're against the sin that they're stuck in, but there is that laziness. Is, is that what, you, what you're kind of saying there, or is that a bit different than that first response? So you, you're asking about someone who they hate their sin, but they're lazy about it? Yeah, they're lazy about it, or, you know, let's say, again, there there is a true desire to repent of it, but for whatever reason, they get sluggish or they don't repent as much as they should from it. And that's if, if that kind of makes sense. Right. It's, it's a little hard to you know fathom hating it but being lazy about it. Okay. Um, so at this point, I, I don't know what further I, I could I oh. could say. Hey, Francis. You say that someone is too immature to to correct someone else that's sinned against them or someone else. Um, Paul Paul's saying here that you know you you are able to. Um, that was part of their their, their maturity. Um, if if a believer is walking in the spirit, um, and they they have dealt with their their own sin, you know they're not in unrepentant sin. Um, then then they, they are able if if they're going to come across in love. Um, if they're going to follow what the scriptures say for going about this, yes, they're, they're able to do that. And so you, how would you determine whether or not that that's the case for yourself, or does someone else need to tell you that? So you, you, you have to search your heart and, 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 and pray and ask the, ask the Lord, you know, is my heart in the right place to be able to, to, to do this? And then if the answer is yes, then you should do it. Uh, if you're not in unrepentant sin, if, if you're not walking in the flesh, you're walking in the, in the spirit, um, yes, lo- love would compel you to, to go to your, your brother or sister. Anyone else? All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we... Bow before you, so thank, thankful to you for Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have sent us the Savior. We thank you, Father, that you did not give to us what our sins deserve, your eternal condemnation, but instead you've given to us your grace. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit, And Lord, we thank you that you uh, place us as believers in your church. And Lord, we thank you that you are working in us that we might uh, know the truth, that we might grow in goodness, and that we might be used by you uh, in instructing our brothers and sisters. We pray, Father, that you would uh, give us hearts uh, to 
to seek out instruction, to receive instruction, um, and to give instruction. Uh, we pray, Father, that, that you would uh, keep us mindful of what the Apostle Paul spoke of as the gospel ministry of being worship. Lord, that is what we want to do, uh, is to, to worship you in all things. So we pray, Father, that you would, uh, that, that, that you would enable us to apply to our lives uh, what we have been studying in the book of Romans throughout this series. Lord, that, that, that we might be more holy as you are holy. We pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.